a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. We have a brand new week ahead of us. We have a lot of things to talk about. And most of all, we have wrong think in which to revel. And there's going to be a lot of it today. I'm just going to tell you straight up. There were a number of remarkable pieces that dropped over the weekend from the likes of uh, Jeffrey Tucker, Ethan Yang, Barry Brownstein, and others. I'm going to share some excerpts with you today, including an incredible article. I'm going to just mention this one right at the beginning. Um, this was an article from Dr. Michael Yaden, and, and I've been checking back and forth. I posted this on Facebook on Saturday, and I warned people, you better read this quickly before the uh, you know censors, I'm sorry, the fact checkers send it down the memory hole. And so far, it's still there. But he has a remarkable piece titled Lies, Damned Lies, and Statistics, The Deadly Danger of False Positives. And this is, uh, this is an experienced and, I presume, informed medical doctor making a very powerful case of how the statistics and the lockdowns and what's being used to justify the lockdowns appears for all the world to be more calculated with keeping us in fear rather than protecting us from disease. It's definitely worth a read, and it's a pretty lengthy piece. So I'm going to mention it here and tell you maybe this would be worth your time. Find a little bit of time. It's going to take more than your lunch hour to uh, properly digest this particular essay. By the way, thanks to our sponsors, I do appreciate uh, the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage for their sponsorship of the program. Um, You know, there are people who are also donating, and I'm talking you, the listener, fellow wrong thinkers, who have stepped up and become monthly patrons. Could be a dollar that they're donating, or $5, or $10. Thank you so much for every dollar that you contribute to helping keep this program moving forward. And I, I greatly appreciate it because uh, this is this is how I sing for my supper. Yes, that off-tune caterwauling is is how I make a living. But uh, this is, I if I could say this without sounding too dramatic, I really believe this is what I was born to do. I'm here to speak the truth as I best understand it. Not that I have it all, but I'm here to to be a platform for truth. And it's not always it's not always my ideas, as you'll hear. I share a lot of great ideas that other people have put out. I'm doing my best to magnify their message. Because if we ever needed it, it's now. <laughs> the time in which we live, it, it desperately requires platforms from which truth can be spoken. And this is one of those platforms. And again, my thanks to those who are supporting it. So let's start with, uh, with a little discussion of Red Dawn. Now, my longtime listeners know that uh, Red Dawn has always had kind of a a special place in my heart. I first saw the movie as a teenager. I think I was 17 years old when it came out, and uh, maybe I was 18. No, I I think I was only 17 at the time. But um, at any rate, that movie had a very 
powerful impact. It was the height of the Cold War, the idea that uh, the Russians would invade and, you know, we'd basically have to fade off into the hills and, and become guerrilla fighters in order to uh, to preserve our freedoms. It really struck home with me and with, with a lot of my friends, so much so that in my household, my kids have learned it's not called Red Dawn. It's called the Historical Training Documentary. So when someone references it, I, my ears always perk up. Okay, somebody's got a take on Red Dawn. In this case, it's Jeffrey A. Tucker in a piece titled, In This Red Dawn, Who Invaded Whom? Listen to what he has to say here. He says, The gigantic mess of 2020, called Lockdown, began with an email thread called Red Dawn, based on the old movie about a Russian invasion of the U.S. He says, The idea, I suppose, was that the virus was the invader. The public health lockdowners and fanatics on the list who urged the overthrow of American life as we knew it imagined themselves to be the saviors. And by the way, he has a link to the emails. This is a PDF from the New York Times, and you can read many, if not all, of the emails there. But what you have to understand is they were enormously influential in generating the necessary panic to kick in their, sadistic, their to kick their sadistic social experiment into high gear. Jeffrey Tucker says what actually happened though was a different kind of invasion. He says it was the saviors who invaded our churches, schools, sports, commercial lives, and even our homes. They took total control, issuing random edicts by the day concerning what we could and could not do. And they enforced these edicts at the point of a gun, thus wrecking countless businesses, driving millions into depression, violating all human rights, and shattering the lives of countless millions, not only in the U.S., but all over the world. And all they needed to accomplish this was to tap into a pre-modern and unscientific and essentially childish penchant to believe that the right way to deal with a virus is to run and hide from it as if human beings didn't evolve with viruses in a complicated dance for a million years. He says, forget everything we've learned from science over the 20th century. Instead, we should behave like Prince Prospero in Edgar Allan Poe's short story, Mask of the Red Death. And yes, he says, the use of the word mask here is a wordplay. To this end, he says, left liberalism gave up all its ideals Concern for the poor, high regard for civil liberties, opposition to biases against the other, its celebration of the arts, even its attachment to public schools and personal privacy. The people among the right and the libertarians who went along, though, or went along through whatever kind of twisted thinking, found themselves trapped too. Limited government, the Constitution, and human rights all had to bow to the great agenda of virus control. Now, he says, the victims of this invasion mainly the people not in a position to pretend to live life fully digitally at home, were so shocked at what was happening that they couldn't marshal the nerve to stand up to the lockdowners. Those who dared protest were jeered mercilessly by a pro-lockdown mainstream media machine. Jeffrey Tucker says many people thought, surely this must be a terrible and ghastly emergency. Otherwise, they never would have done this. But as the months have rolled on, we are discovering an even more horrible truth. This is a normal virus that behaves like every widespread respiratory virus that science has encountered in the past. Best dealt with not via state coercion, but with medical therapeutics and immunological adaptation. He says, we'll see in a few years what really happened to us through two pieces of data. Excess deaths over a five-year period, 
which will not reveal much that's unusual, and this fact will confuse future generations, and GDP data, which will reveal astonishing economic devastation never seen before in the modern world, not even in depression or war. Okay, I'm going to pause for just a second here. Let that last one sink in. Because I don't believe we have really seen the, the big effects of what has been done economically. We're starting to feel it. And people who have been put out of work, businesses that have been closed and now have to, to, have to remain closed permanently, yeah, they feel it. The rest of us are still kind of circling the drain, feeling like, okay, maybe we escaped it. But I think Jeff Tucker has something to consider here, and that is, I think we too will see the, the extent of this devastation, and it's going to shock all of us. Back to the article. He says, The Great Suppression has wrecked not only whole sectors of industry and art, but has fundamentally shaken public confidence in core expectations concerning law, liberty, and the protection of property against invasion. He says, We're nowhere near coming to terms with what has happened in our world. Attorney General William Barr, in a question and answer session at Hillsdale College, rightly decried the COVID lockdowns as a grotesque intervention in people's lives. He says, you know, putting a national lockdown, stay-at-home orders is like house arrest. It's, you know, other than slavery, which was a different kind of restraint, this is the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in American history. The person in the white coat is not the grand seer who can come up with a right decision for society. A free people makes its decisions through elected representatives. So where was the ACLU? Where was the civil liberties defending left? Why did the courts wait so long in most states to finally act? For that matter, how did this all happen in a country that prides itself on the rule of law and freedom for the individual? Okay, these are fair questions. We're going to come back to Jeff Tucker's piece here in a few minutes, and it will be included in the show notes, which I would encourage you to avail yourself of at thebrianhydeshow.com. Red Dawn, who invaded who? I'm not sure we're going to like the answer here. (laughs) If you think about it, yeah, the very people who are claiming to save us are the ones who are putting us under their foot. And I'm seeing this in my home state of Utah as our governor has renewed the declaration of emergency just as it was about to expire. Got to keep those dollars flowing somehow from the federal government, can't you? Or don't you? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing with you a piece from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. If you haven't visited their website, AIER.org, and signed up to have their regular daily email updates drop into your inbox, you are missing out on a really remarkable source of information. Their writers and and the, the articles that they cover are scholarly, but not written in language that only a scholar could possibly understand. They're, <clears throat> they're down to earth and very, very well researched 
and have become one of my favorite go-to sources, particularly as we as we look at some of the different effects and some of the, the different analysis of the COVID-19 pandemic, and more particularly, the official response. This is top-shelf information, and I can't recommend it strongly enough to those who really want to get a good picture of what's going on without being spoon-fed pablum by a... a media machine that's just trying to to keep the official narrative in place and make sure that you don't think outside of the 3x5 index card of approved opinion. So Jeffrey Tucker asks, where was the ACLU? Where was the civil liberties defending left? Why did the courts wait so long in most states to finally act? For that matter, how did this happen at all in a country that prides itself on the rule of law and freedom for the individual. These are questions, he says, that we will be asking for a long time. The sheer evil that has transpired over these six months is mind-boggling. And one of the major political parties has actually made it a campaign issue. We should have locked down more. This is House Minority Whip Jim Clyburn. It would have been great if we'd had a national lockdown so that people's lives would be saved and our children would be going on with their lives today as they should be. Really? Jeffrey Tucker says, I just spent a bit of time watching the arguments in the Kentucky Supreme Court, during which one side says the governor cannot legally exercise dictatorial power on a whim. And the other side keeps saying, but there's a virus, as if the presence of a pathogen is unprecedented and thereby justifies throwing out all human rights and freedoms. He says, it's astonishing that we, at this late date, are debating fundamental issues of freedom itself And that in the United States, of all places, we have major sectors of public opinion pushing for autocratic absolutism as a recommended theory of law. So his conclusion is, this was indeed Red Dawn. But Jeff Tucker says the invader was not the virus, but rather governments who imagined that with enough edicts and guns, they could intimidate the virus into going away. They tried to scare the disease away with rhetoric and violence, but in the end, Governments have only one ability, the capacity to control people. And the sooner we recognize the real enemy is government overreach, the sooner we can get on with making sure nothing like this ever happens again. Again, that's Jeffrey Tucker explaining how we've just experienced a Red Dawn scenario. All right, moving on. There's another great piece from another writer, from the American Economic uh, Institute, rather, for Economic Research. This is Ethan Yang, and we have shared a number of Ethan's pieces before. This one jumped out at me because we touched on this last week on the show. I don't know if you remember us talking about, uh, I think it was Friday, uh, there was a commentary about why principles mattered during a pandemic. I was actually sharing some thoughts from Becky Akers and a piece that she had published on lewrockwell.com. This is Ethan Yang's take. And he goes into a little bit more detail. Well worth reading, though. He says, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Over the course of six months, the United States, as well as the entire world, has succeeded in bringing itself to its knees, economically, socially, and politically. It may seem like a lifetime ago, but we entered the year 2020 not just as a country, but as a global civilization, the richest, freest, and healthiest we have collectively been in history. Yet at the turn of the decade, we turned our back on the ideas and institutions that have served us so well. 
We've forgotten the value of liberty as governments worldwide impose lockdown orders without a moment's hesitation. Gone are the notions of limited government. As officials elected and unelected arbitrarily exercise power, they were never granted. We've forgotten the necessity of entrepreneurs as businesses are labeled essential and non-essential while protesters wheel a guillotine up to the house of Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos. We turned our backs on the idea of individual dignity. Government officials, intellectuals, and even everyday citizens perpetuate shameful rhetoric about the necessity for greater disruption to normal life with little regard for the consequences these policies have brought upon us. Here's his point. The great tragedy is that these ideas, not our scientific instruments, our wealth, or any other material resource, are what allowed us to build a civilization where its inhabitants can live healthier, wealthier, and more comfortably than any human has remotely experienced. How we can respond quickly to problems such as COVID-19 with precise solutions, not incompetent and disastrous policies. He says we've seen firsthand and in rapid fashion the damage to society that comes with abusing our principles and how futile our vast resources are without them. That's the thing that really blows me away, by the way, is that last line about how futile our vast resources are without our principles intact. I'll probably talk more about that a little bit later, but back to Ethan Yang's article, The Power of Ideas and Values. He says, We are fortunate to be living in a time known as the Great Enrichment, a time in human history brought about by the growing popularity of ideas beginning sometime around the 16th to 17th century, but coming fully, but fully coming to implementation in the 19th century. The Claremont Review of Books says, quote, For most of history, humans have survived on roughly $3 a day, enough for subsistence living. In good times, that amount might double or triple, but one bad harvest or natural disaster could plunge a community back into abject poverty. Around 200 years ago, things began to rapidly change. Today, the average American lives on about $130 a day. Europe, Canada, Australia, and parts of South America and Asia have experienced similar increases. What explains this truly staggering development? After all, earlier societies engaged in commerce-friendly practices like establishing markets, pursuing international trade, and securing property rights too. Yet this extraordinary growth... This great enrichment only occurred after 1800, end quote. Now, Ethan Yang says this was no coincidence. It was the consequence of a set of ideas centered around freedom. Deirdre McCluskey writes extensively on the emergence of these ideas when she notes, quote, what came under question in the world in 1517 to 1848 and beyond slowly on account of religious radicals of the 16th century and then the political radicals of the 17th and 18th centuries and then the abolitionist and black and feminist and gay and untouchable radicals of the 19th and 20th centuries was illiberty and indignity, the one political, the other social, end quote. So Ethan Yang says, by restraining government and gradually clearing aside social barriers, more and more people were able to contribute to society in voluntary as well as mutually beneficial ways. It turned out that free people meant more ideas, more competition, more inventions, more business, more workers, more everything. 
This is what makes a free society something worth fighting for and something worth defending. When those who rule are restrained and placed on the same standing as of those they rule, society is capable of tremendous accomplishments. That is because it is free of the arbitrary hand that picks winners and losers. Solutions come from the marketplace of ideas and are decided upon by the effectiveness of persuasion as well as reason. Great titles... And resumes do not grant special authority. The allocation of wealth, merit, and resources are decided not by a central authority, but by countless individual interactions, voluntary interactions that occur in a market that respects private property and mutual exchange. Does any of this ring true to you? And if it does, can I ask... How vigorously are you defending these principles? We'll come back to Ethan Yang's commentary, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Once again, thank you for being a wrong thinker and joining me in our daily quest to see the world not only a little more clearly, but also to see what we can do within our individual circle of influences, circles of influence, that is, my English teacher rolleth over in her grave, to, uh, to make a difference. So I'm sharing with you this article from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research, Why Principles Still Matter in a Pandemic. And once again, he has a quote here from Deirdre McCloskey, who says, Thank the English levelers and then Locke in the 17th century and Voltaire and Smith and Franklin and Paine and Wollstonecraft, among the other advanced thinkers of the 18th century, the ordinary people, the commoners, both workers and bosses, began to be released from the ancient notion of hierarchy, the naturalization of the noble gentleman's rule over hoi polloi. End quote. So for much of human history, the common man survived on mere scraps, seeing little improvement in living standards for centuries. Society was divided among, along rigid lines of nobility and peasantry, the rulers and the ruled. What changed all of this for the better was the proliferation of ideas and values concerning individual worth. This accomplishment was not sudden, nor is the workload necessarily attributed to one group of people. It was the struggle. It is the struggle of humanity, he says, since inception. Now, Ethan Yang points out that Tom Palmer delivered a comprehensive lecture where he noted that whispers of freedom and justice can be seen taking root in literature as far back as the ancient Mesopotamian epic of Gilgamesh. And again, he says, McCloskey reminds us the revaluation was derived not from some ancient superiority of the Europeans but from egalitarian accidents in their politics between Luther's Reformation in 1517 and the American Constitution and the French Revolution in 1789. The leveler, Richard Rumbold, facing his execution in 1685, declared, I am sure there was no man born marked of God above another, for none comes into the world with a saddle on his back, neither any booted and spurred to ride him. End quote. Wow. Just as an aside here, Does this not make you appreciate the incredible good fortune you have to live at this time, in this place, 
to enjoy the blessings of, of these incredible thinkers and the enlightenment that came before us and paved the way for all of this to be possible. Look, I'll, I'll admit, I've taken it for granted as much as anybody. You know, I've, I have approached it with this nonchalance. Well, of course, I'm an American. America is where this kind of stuff is to be taken, you know, as, as a given. Everybody has the right to this. But until you delve into the history and understand how long it took for the recognition and acknowledgement that you have natural rights and that government exists not to tell you everything that you must do, but to protect and guarantee those natural rights. It took a long time, and there was a lot of philosophical wrangling and, and not a small amount of blood spilled in determining which ideas would hold. And I guess my point here is just simply what we, what we, uh, what we take a little too lightly, we were in grave danger of losing. So it might not be a bad idea to become a little bit better acquainted with not only uh, your liberties and your natural rights, but how the protection of those things and the understanding of those things came about and how the price was paid to secure those things for you. Maybe we'd, we'd take them a little less for granted. As Ethan Yang says, the wealth, institutions, and accomplishments of society mean nothing without good principles. Turning our backs on the ideas of liberty, entrepreneurship, individual dignity, and limited government has and will doom even the most powerful society to ruin. Embracing these ideas has led rural nations such as South Korea and Taiwan to become economic powerhouses in a single lifetime. But eschewing them will relegate nations such as North Korea to starvation. Now there's a lot more to this article. He talks about how omnipotent government is nothing new. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you examine this on your own again. Go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and, and find the time to read this. Just a couple of thoughts here. Liberty is always unfinished business. Just because it's been secured once doesn't mean it stays secured. Someone has to do the heavy lifting to make sure that that torch can be passed, lit, and intact to the next generation. And as Ethan Yang explains, human history is a great epic of the individual against the state, the marginalized against the majority. And the invention of the printing press and the freedom of speech that it encouraged is just one example of the power of ideas as well as the draconian tendencies of the state. The key takeaway that he points out here, and this is particularly, you know, in regard to why these principles matter in terms of in, in, in the time of a pandemic. He says the late Dr. Donald Henderson, who led the eradication of smallpox, may have implicitly endorsed the ideas of the great enrichment in combating pandemics. When he wrote, experience has shown that communities faced with epidemics or other adverse events respond best and with the least anxiety when the normal social functioning of the community is least disrupted. Strong political and public health leadership to provide reassurance and to ensure that needed medical care services are provided are critical elements. If either is seen to be less than optimal, optimal rather, a manageable epidemic could move toward catastrophe. End quote. Now, Ethan Yang says, although likely not a scholar who studied the works of those such as Deirdre McCluskey or any other economist, 
Dr. Henderson's words very much affirm these ideals. By doing as he says and ensuring the normal functioning of the community is least disrupted, we affirm the power of free people and condemn the incompetent hand of unilateral intervention. Freedom and prosperity are what allow a society to eradicate disease as well as protect the the vulnerable. His words accentuate the values of individual dignity and voluntary association, ideas that lead to outcomes that maximize social as well as economic benefit. And he concludes by saying a healthy and prosperous society is not guaranteed by the size of its wealth, the capabilities of its technology, or the perceived intelligence of its experts. Rather, it's upheld by the promulgation of ideas, ideas rooted in free enterprise, limited government, individual dignity, and the rule of law. He says, America, the most powerful polity in human history, brought itself to its knees by turning on these proven principles in the midst of a pandemic that freer countries handled far better. Smack. Wow. We kind of needed a little backhand across the face, though, to, to help drive that home. Again, this is Ethan Yang, his brilliant explanation of why principles still matter in a pandemic. All right. I want to touch on something else here, too. And I, I'll have to admit, this one was a little bit of, of a struggle for me. I, I love Barry Brownstein's writing. I've never read anything that he's written without coming away feeling better informed than I was before I started. And I don't know why. Maybe it's just personal pride on this one. Uh, his article's titled, Don't Scapegoat Business for Mask Mandates. Look, I don't like going to restaurants or other businesses where, you know, they have someone sitting there at the door, you know, ruthlessly enforcing the mask mandate. Now, oftentimes it's not ruthless either. A lot of times it's just someone there to remind you. But occasionally you'll find there are businesses that are, you know, very, uh, how can I put this, vigorous in their enforcement of something that isn't even a law. It's merely a suggestion, but they treat it as if it is a law. And I take offense at that. And I say, I'm never going to go back there again. Here's what Barry Brownstein says. He says, many days my Facebook feed includes another indignant post from someone who, when asked to wear a mask, responded by righteously refusing to patronize the business. If it's about a restaurant, the poster typically includes a tedious recital of a conversation with the manager. The offended customer claims to expose the illogic of being able to sit without a mask but not walk to the table unmasked. Then comes the customer's triumphant conclusion, the restaurant used to care about my business, but since they no longer do, I will never dine there again. Still worse, offended customers urge others to join their boycott. Predictably, a long thread begins with others sharing indignities they've suffered, and he says, I'm not without sympathy for the boycotter's position. Like others... I'm alarmed about where mask mandates and other erosions to civil liberties may lead. And he says, I, too, have drawn my line in the sand. When required by a hostess to provide personal information for contact tracing in case of an outbreak, my wife and I quietly refused and left the restaurant. So what's my beef with the boycotters? Well, as Jeffrey Tucker recently observed, many millions of workers, owners, restaurant owners and customers, rather, have been treated so brutally by government in the war on restaurants. Yelp reports as of August 31st, 163,735 total businesses on Yelp have closed since the beginning of the pandemic, and about 60% of them will not reopen again. And so he asks the question, is boycotting how we want to treat small businesses that are already under siege? Okay, so it's called putting yourself in the other guy's shoes. We're going to come back to this just the other side of our break. Stay with us.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Once again, welcome to the show. Let's uh, continue on with our discussion of not scapegoating business for mask mandates. This is from Barry Brownstein, writing for uh, the uh, American Institute for Economic Research. And he asks, why would we want to treat small businesses already under siege with a boycott? Why do we want to make things even tougher? Now, this is the tough truth. This is the part I struggled with. Consumers drive mask policies. He says, despite how it may appear to offended customers, a national mask mandate has bipartisan support from a vast majority of of voters. In other words, Biden didn't make mask mandates a campaign issue without polling data. Now, Barry Brownstein says he lives in New Hampshire. There's no statewide mask mandate in rural areas of the state. Incidences of COVID-19 have been close to non-existent, yet mask requirements have become ubiquitous. Business owners are often responding to the demands of frightened consumers. A good small business owner continually tunes into what their customers want or their business fails. He says, in our small town, I've known business owners for many years. They've shared with me their frustration over finding the right balance to please their customers. One owner shared with me the story of an incident triggered by my own behavior. He says, I'd been in his establishment while not wearing a mask. I had a typical conversation with employees I knew. After I left the store, a fearful customer went ballistic, making a scene and vowing never to shop there again. The owner was not upset with me, but he was exasperated by the fear and anger of the customer. Barry Brownstein says our local produce farmer, Steve, is normally unflappable with his typical New Hampshire live and let live streak. Each spring, he rolls the dice as he bets on the date of the last frost. If Steve plants too early... He will lose a crop and have to start again a bit too late, and he misses misses out on precious summer income. Through July 2020, Steve had no mask requirement at his outdoor farm stand. In August, the mask requirement sign went up. Barry, he said to me in August, this mask business is getting to me. And Barry says, I listened as he explained that about 5% of the customers go storming off when asked to put on a mask. He regrets their anger, especially since that's income he can't afford to lose. So why the mask requirement? Because far more customers scolded him earlier in the summer for not having a mask requirement. Now, he says, Steve is no mask zealot. When other customers aren't around, we converse normally without a mask. His mask decision is driven purely by his on-the-ground read of his market. Steve was visited by a state health inspector, and while the state has no mandatory policy, the inspector found a way to convince Steve to choose to enforce a mask requirement or run the risk of being closed down by the health department. Driven by peer pressure from customers with additional pressure from an inspector, for Steve, a mask requirement seemed to be the best course of action. Better better to lose some business than all business. Now, Barry says, if you tell me Steve should make a heroic stand for liberty and go down fighting, I say, you don't know Steve or his business. Beginning in March with planting and then through Halloween, he and his employees put in long, grueling days serving locals and tourists. Steve has not gotten rich. He has no nest egg to survive one lost season. Steve is responding to his consumers, and like many small businesses, he is trying to survive. The COVID-19 crisis has led to policies of separation. 
who markets brought together, government is tearing asunder. And he asks the question, do we want to fight separation with more separation? The manifestations of fear are many, but the behind the visible is the invisible mindset, us versus them. The face-off is between those who prefer to mask and those who prefer to go without a mask. Biden's attempt to frame mask wearers as less selfish and more patriotic is another manifestation of growing polarization. And Barry Brownstein says, when I listened to Farmer Steve, I reflected on my boorish judgments about risk-averse people we've encountered on the hiking trails this summer. Most hikers don't mask. Some mask when they see you coming. But he says, my wife and I don't hike with masks. We'll try to get off the trail and not disturb the, the peace of the masked hikers. Shields up, kids, one mother said to her children as she saw us approaching. We stepped off the trail and their masks went up anyway. He says, I wish I could tell you I thought no more about their decision to shield than I thought about their choice of backpacks. Yet righteous thoughts on the mask issue crept into our conversation about their shields up action. He says opinions are often based on assumptions we make about the actions of others. We thought the mother was foolishly depriving her children of a needed unmasked day of fresh air in the great outdoors. Is that true? Perhaps in her mind, she was more concerned about us than we were about her. And he says, how about those who gripe about the restaurant owner who didn't care about my business? Is that true? In today's times, the owner desperately cares about all business and tries to navigate competing consumer demands. In his important 2014 essay against libertarian brutalism, Jeffrey Tucker asks, why should we favor human liberty over a social order ruled by power? And to answer his questions, Tucker argues libertarians can generally be divided into two camps, humanitarians and brutalists. Tucker observes that humanitarians are inspired by the idea that liberty allows peaceful human cooperation. Liberty socializes people with rewards toward getting along rather than tearing each other apart. and leads to a world in which people are valued as ends in themselves rather than fodder in the central plan. Of brutalists, Tucker observes what's impressive about liberty is that it allows people to assert their individual preferences, to form homogenous tribes, to work out their biases in action, to ostracize people based on politically incorrect standards, to hate to their heart's content so long as no violence is used as a means. Now, libertarian humanitarians, Tucker argues, value the social peace that emerges from freedom, while the brutalists value the freedom to reject cooperation in favor of gut-level prejudice. Even in 2014, Tucker observed the brutalist impulse is everywhere in evidence, especially on social media. Angry customers are sure a store's mask policy ruined their day. To boycott, well, that's justified retribution. Liberty protects the call or the right to call for a boycott of an honorable business whose views of what their customers want is different from yours. But here, Barry Brownstein warns, proceed with caution. A boycott does not heal, but undermines the social peace as people live in fear and government policies tear apart the social fabric. The Arbinger Institute in their book, The Anatomy of Peace, helps us to distinguish two fundamental ways of being in the world. And these two ways are another lens to understand Tucker's humanitarians and brutalists dichotomy. The two Arbinger mindsets, based on the work of philosopher Martin Buber, lead to different ways of interacting with other people. We can see others as people who matter like we ourselves matter, or as objects that don't matter like we matter. When we see others 
as counting like our like we ourselves count, our hearts are at peace. But when we see others as not counting like we count, our hearts are at war. By the way, I've read this book, The Anatomy of Peace, and it is it's remarkable. And I think that the biggest takeaway from from that book that just shocked me right to my core was the realization of how often I was treating my kids as if they were objects rather than people. That was a tough pill to swallow. Barry Brownstein says our personal salvation depends upon our choices. As the Arbinger Institute writes in The Anatomy of Peace, when I de- whenever I dehumanize another, I necessarily dehumanize all that is human, including myself. He says brutalist methods will not rebuild social peace. This is not a call to accept mandates. But such mandates can be opposed without blaming the small business owners who are victimized just as much as we are. Tucker writes, the bigger point of human liberty is not to make the world more divided and miserable, but to enable human flourishing in peace and prosperity. For the humanist, for the humanist he says, the not-so-easy challenge is to oppose without dividing. Wow. Yeah, he's, he's right on the money there. Something I'm going to have to work on, obviously. By the way, I'm going to again plug this piece by Dr. Michael Yadon. Lies, damned lies, and health statistics, the deadly danger of false positives. This is a a pretty lengthy essay. You're not going to, you know, knock this out in five minutes and be like, oh, yeah, 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 I get it. But he makes a very powerful case that so much of the, the lockdowns and the statistics that are being reported to us right here in my home state of Utah, why we've had two days with over a thousand new cases. But there is no context by which to understand. So what does that mean? Are the hospitals overflowing? Are they running the incinerators day and night trying to dispose of the bodies of the dead? What does it mean? You know, the governor just re- re, uh, renewed the declaration of emergency. He's just extending the same emergency, of course, but I guess he thinks that we're scared enough. We're not going to question this kind of thing. It seems like these lockdowns and the way these statistics are being reported have a lot more to do with keeping us in fear than they do with protecting us from a disease. And I, I want to strongly recommend Dr. Michael Yaden's piece, which you can find in the show notes published at the BrianHydeShow.com. You're looking for the show notes for September 21st of 2020. It'll be well worth your time, and I would encourage you to take a close look and uh, see what you think. If it's good enough, share it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.